Welcome to This Way to the Stars, a beginner's guide to astronomy in Victoria. This podcast series will be focusing on the people and the science behind the Astronomical Society of Victoria, known as the ASV. The ASV is based in Melbourne, Australia, and has over 1,000 members, making it one of the largest amateur astronomy organisations in the Southern Hemisphere. Membership is open to all with an interest in astronomy, including complete beginners like me. I'm Elise, amateur space enthusiast, and today I'm joined by Clint Jeffrey, Section Director for Radio Astronomy at the ASV. Clint, thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? Oh, not a problem, Elise. It's uh, all very, very good. <laughs> uh, so for those who don't know, what is radio astronomy? Well, it's, uh, it's looking at the invisible universe. We're, we're looking at a a whole aspect of astronomy that uh, is only really new. It's just, I mean, it originally kicked off in the not early 1930s. 1932 mm. was uh, the uh, original discovery that was made by Carl Jansky. Mm. And uh, since then, uh, there's been so much that's been discovered along the way. And if our eyes were sensitive to, to looking at the sky in terms of radio waves, that the, the sky is absolutely illuminous. It's... Uh, there's radio sources and uh, uh, objects in the sky that are so easy to be able to detect with the right equipment. Mm. So you've got optical astronomy that looks at a very narrow bandwidth of, of the electromagnetic spectrum. And uh, with radio, it opens up a completely interesting view of the universe. And uh, the, the kind of imagery that can be created from looking at the sky in terms of radio reveals just so much more that optical light can't uh, reveal. But having said that, uh, optical and radio, they work hand in hand. Without mm. the optical, the, the radio is, is only showing part of the story. So for many years, the optical astronomy was showing you part of the picture. But uh, the, the radio, looking at the sky in terms of radio wavelengths, all that part of the electromagnetic spectrum you, you see and learn all about uh, the sky. And uh, so building and constructing uh, an antenna system and mm. attaching a, a radio receiver to it, then a, a chart recording device, you can detect all these very, very faint weak signals. Carl Sagan once said that the uh, overall signals that come in from the sky by all the radio telescopes in the whole world uh, equates to a, the, the amount of energy that's released from a snowflake hitting the ground. Wow. The, the energy that's involved is so weak and mm. so minuscule that it, it just goes to show that the technology that's being used today for radio astronomy is absolutely unique. And it is quite surprising that we can actually look so far back into the universe to re reveal the, the secrets that are out there. But there's still so much to learn, so much that's to, to be discovered. So uh, wow. to be a professional radio astronomer these days, you are right on the leading edge of discovery. <laughs> and like I say, optical and radio astronomy go very much hand in hand. And thank goodness for that too. <laughs> Exciting stuff. It How is. did you first get into radio astronomy then? Oh, look, for me, uh, it goes back a long way, I think. Uh, I'm now 60 years old. Uh, so for me, my interest in radio communications and electronics started when I was probably around about 12 years old or so. Uh, I can remember looking at books on astronomy that had like basic how and why series of books. Mm. They had a few books on astronomy, the planets, the solar system. And uh, of course, at that age, it was the pictures that always grabbed me first. So, <laughs> so I used to see uh, 
images of, uh, of radio transmitting antennas that were emitting some sort of radio energy. And I thought, what is this? What, what does this all mean? Mm. So for me, it was uh, a very slow discovery that ramped up as I got to about my mid-teenage, uh, where I discovered about ham radio, uh, the mm. hobby of uh, amateur radio. And uh, it's some people might say that's a bit of a dying hobby, but <laughs> in, in one sense, there's still many, many thousands of radio amateurs throughout the world that practice the hobby and it keeps them off the streets sort of thing. <laughs> but um, I got my license when I was uh, 16 years old. And wow. for that, you have to sit a theory, uh, a course on theory and electronics. And uh, you even have to learn how to send Morse code. And uh, huh. so... There was that early time in my life, between 10 to, to 15, I was exploring what radio communications was all about. And, and somewhere around about that same time, I, I had this interest in, this, in astronomy, but I didn't really connect the two. I, astronomy for me was going outside at nighttime and looking up at the sky for where I, I was born in Dandenong here. Oh. Um, the city lights wasn't too much of a problem. You could see so much more of the sky uh, in the uh, you know, mid sixties to, mm. to uh, early seventies. But I, I was always intrigued by the stars and uh, I used to get up early in the morning and, and watch Venus coming up uh, twilight star in the, uh, before the sun would rise. And I always used to look at that planet thinking magnificent object in the sky, so bright and uh, I, I used to often always look for the, the first stars that used to start come out just as the sun used to go down. You just wait there and looking at the sky. There it is. There's the first stars. I love that <laughs> so, feeling. <laughs> yeah. So that always intrigued me as well. The whole whole aspect of radio communications and ham radio was what was the strongest with me. And of course, I was looking for work at this time, or about to look for full-time work. So I was getting involved with electronics seriously. And it wasn't until Cosmos, uh, that, uh, Carl Sagan talked about radio astronomy. And uh, I, I think for me, it was uh, a steady progress to finally asking that question, who does radio astronomy? Uh, and uh, through the ham radio circles, I got this reply back from a, a fellow at Radio Amateur who said, Clint, the Astronomical Society of Victoria has a radio astronomy section. Come across and I'll take you over there and introduce you to the, the then section director. And, uh, you know, I've been going ever since. Wow. <laughs> and that was probably, that would have been 1993, uh, around about 1993 that I first sat in on one of their meetings. And uh, Lockie Creswell was the section director at the time, and he was uh, the section director for 16 years. So I got to know Lockie pretty well. Very nice chap. And uh, over those 16 years, it was just an in interesting roller coaster ride about things that we did in in the section. So, yeah, from uh, from early beginnings. Um, mm. I mean, to be honest, a, a pair of binoculars were the only thing I've ever had up until recently for looking at the sky. I've never really owned a really? telescope. So. <laughs> It's just recently that I've managed to come by a couple of Saxon telescopes, which I'm now hoping to build an observatory for in the backyard here and start oh, seriously looking at the sky. Yeah, <laughs> Amazing. So back in the 90s when you just joined the radio astronomy section, what sort of things did you do then? Well, it was very fortunate timing because in that first year, that 1993 uh, coming into 1994, we got wind of the fact that there was going to be an event occurring in July of 1994. Uh, it was making big, big headlines amongst the astronomical community. 
and it was of course the uh, impact of Shoemaker leaving the comet Shoemaker mm. leaving Nine with Jupiter, and that was such a big deal. I mean, everybody <laughs> was sitting there getting observations ready to, to uh, take place. I mean, there were infrared uh, telescopes being placed on board aircraft to, to try and get as high above the, the Earth's atmosphere as to, really? to capture the best images of, of Jupiter. I mean, it was just a, an amazing time. And somebody suggested uh, maybe there was a possibility that it could be possible to detect the impact as these fragments impacted with the upper atmosphere of Jupiter and it literally exploded. There might be some sort of radio emission from those impacts. Oh, okay. So we decided to set up three receiving locations around Melbourne, one at my place, um, uh, another one at a friend's place, and uh, Lockie had uh, gone out to central Victoria to try to find a, a really quiet location radio-wise and set up a very basic antenna. He used a very simple receiver arrangement. You took the audio output of the receiver and you connected it to a, a chart recording device and away you go. And what was fortunate was that NASA was supplying possible times for these impacts mm. to occur. So we had a, a kind of a heads up on when to listen for and what time to be roughly listening to these impacts. So uh, I, I can remember at home, I, I turned everything off in the house, lights, I just sat in a subdued room. <laughs> the only glow in the room was coming from my radio receiver, from a, a chart recorder that I had going, a paper roll type chart recorder where the paper was streaming out at, at wow. you know, <laughs> half a meter, a couple of seconds, you know, really fast. You're going through lots of paper. But, <laughs> but um, I, I sat there listening to uh, a time signals service on the, on shortwave that was giving a time marker and I, I would be by pen and paper I'd be marking this is now 1205 1206 12 sort of putting markers on the uh, on the chart paper so we had a really accurate idea of when we were seeing impacts occurring entirely so manual had, <laughs> yeah absolutely and that's that's part of what becoming a radio astronomer as such is uh, is all about doing all those hard yards in the beginning mm. uh, look between the three of us that they had set up um, observatories around the place uh, once the event had come and gone and it took over about a period of a week or so for these impacts to occur our next uh, radio section meeting we we got together we had all our chart recordings uh, spread out across the table you know we took up three meters of bench space with all these chart recordings and what we tried to do was to to align the timing of all the chart recordings that were made mm. and uh, or if other chart recordings that didn't have time references so much the ones that were actually produced using electronic programming they still had a computer-based time so that still gave us something to go by and we were pretty certain that given the impact times that NASA supplied us at the time, uh, that we aligned up pretty close some impacts that were occurring. I mean, sure enough, we were looking at a very noisy looking floor, mm. uh, noise floor, um, but there were distinct peaks and, and noise peaks that were occurring around about the fragment time impact times. And I think, you know, basically after a bit of discussion and talking about it, we, we were fairly adamant that we had detected uh, these impacts via the radio uh, medium. And wow. uh, uh, Monash University had the same thing going up at Mount Burnett Observatory. Oh. Um, at, at that time, the observatory was still being operated by Monash and uh, some of their students had set up an antenna across a little reservoir that's up there next to Mount Burnett Observatory. And uh, they, had a, they actually had theirs set up quite a few weeks before the event. And the idea was to actually create a baseline before 
during and after. So they kind of had a definite idea, oh, it was something that was actually detected. And so um, they, they had their test setup going for quite a while and they, they actually saw the, the galactic background going through the antenna and uh, wow. a few other interesting things were detected as well. So it proved their system up there was working quite well. I, I, I believe that there was a little bit of a problem that occurred after the event occurred. Some of that data was lost oh. uh, due to some unfortunate little accident. And so all of the early stuff that they recorded, they managed to get and, and prove that things were working. Uh, but uh, a lot of the other important date details was unfortunately lost in a, in a bit of a hardware drive uh, oh, no. uh, incident. So that was a bit of a shame. Oh. Um, but having said that, we also know of another fellow in central Victoria, uh, Doug MacArthur, the late Doug MacArthur, who's also a radio amateur, or was a radio amateur, mm. uh, VK3UM is his call sign. And um, he had a, a, a very large dish antenna. In fact, it's very much the same antenna that we now have up at uh, Heathcote. Ah. And uh, with his antenna, his, his dish antenna was specifically uh, adjusted for, for ham radio purposes to reflect a signal off the moon and, and have those sorts of communications. Mm. Um, but he decided to move his dish towards Jupiter during that time. And lo and behold, at the frequencies, quite, you know, quite high frequencies, 400 megahertz, mm. he was actually able to detect impacts as well. So Jupiter was the thing at the time. And um, it, it got us all absolutely wanting to do what's next to do, what's next, you know? <laughs> so uh, that, that then led on to trying to find out um, uh, how we can get uh, other systems up and running and working. and. And we, we then got heard about a, a, an old Telstra research site uh, down the, the coast here. They had a, a 4.6 metre dish antenna that was about to be cut up for scrap. And so we decided to, to go down there and pick up this dish. It, it took us a couple of weekends to, to get it to its ultimate destination. But this solid dish, 4.6 metres, I mean, it, it was very, very heavy. But we moved that to a private property um, that was up at Officer in Gippsland there. And for probably about 10 years, we tried to use this dish to do radio astronomy. The, uh, a support structure was designed and built to support the dish so we could actually turn it around and, and tilt it. Mm. Um, we built and designed a few receivers to, to work at the, the focus of the dish. Um, and uh, yeah, literally once a month, we had a, a, a organized little working beat of all our little section that would go up there uh, and uh, work for a few hours on this dish. And it was a, a labor of love there for quite a while. Mm. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, it was on private property. It didn't really belong to the Astronomical Society of Victoria as such. Right. And uh, eventually... The, the project was abandoned. And as far as I understand, the dish is still there to this day. Huh. Um, and if I ever got wind of the fact that it was available to take and all that sort of thing, I'd probably try to organise to get it. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, that was, like I say, it was about 10 years of that. And um, around about that time, the Leon Mao Dark Sky site uh, up at Heathcote was being developed mm. and uh, had to come, come online more or less. And I, I think we, as a group, we decided, well, why not do something with the, the Leo Mao Dark Sky site? It's there. It belongs to the Astronomical Society. You know, there's a lot of boxes being ticked here. So uh, that was our next uh, uh, adventure, so to speak. Yeah, so that, I guess, brings us to now, because it was only last year, wasn't it, that the new radio telescope at the Leon Mao site was opened officially? 
Absolutely, yes. The uh, eight and a half meter, 28 foot dish antenna, it's made by a company, or at least was made by a company called Kennedy uh, over there in the States. There were 10 of these that were shipped across from uh, America to, uh, to Australia, particularly here in Victoria mostly. This was the early 60s. And uh, it was, uh, the antenna was initially used to uh, experiment with VHF communications, very high frequency communications between the mainland and Tasmania to see what possible oh. radio links could be used. So these huge dishes were set up on specially designed support structures that had the dish pointing at the horizon. It, mm. They weren't used for radio astronomy. <laughs> it was terrestrial communications. So for about... I guess the best part of 12 months, a lot of those experiments and uh, were conducted, all the results came in, and probably within a very short space of time, these the dishes were basically uh, were used. That was mm. it. They were basically abandoned. So um, a word went out that these dishes were, uh, were being attended uh, and available to, to get, get a hold of. And one of the members, the former members of uh, the ASV found this dish and had it sitting on his property for quite a while. But he, he finally gets in contact with me to say, Clint, look, I'm not likely to be doing anything with this dish. So if you're interested, it's available to you, to the ASV. So a deal was worked out and it was just like, that's the beginning, you know. Now, yeah. now we need to organise how to, to build it and construct it and mm. put it together. And uh, yeah, by, uh, by March uh, last year, the Messier Star Party, the dish was officially ready to be officially opened by a former premier mm. and uh, it was a really big deal it, <laughs> at that stage we hadn't developed the receiver yet for the, the the actual receiver that sits at the focal point but the basic dish itself was now controllable by uh, uh, motor systems and uh, I have to say you know thanks to the membership of the ASV for uh, for being able to supply the funds to uh, to be able you know get this project finally up and running so um, now's, uh, now's the situation of uh, getting around to using it. <laughs> yeah, it's very impressive. Clint, could you describe how does a radio telescope, you know, differ from a reflector or refractor telescope? Okay. I usually like to describe the operation of a radio telescope a bit, a bit like a, um, a normal optical telescope. You know, the bigger the, the reflecting area, the mirror, um, the more light that it sees. Mm. And this is pretty much the same thing. The, the radio telescope as it is with a parabolic dish has by its nature the, the capability of picking up light coming straight down to the dish and reflecting it to the focal point. The focal point itself is like the eyepiece of uh, a normal optical telescope. That's where you, you stick your eye and that's where mm -hmm. we put our radio receivers, which is like the eye. So mm. this, this dish antenna is, like I say, it's, it's all metallic. It's made out of uh, all, all aluminium, which is a perfect reflector for, for radio energy. So as this, these very weak signals come in from the universe, they hit the dish and reflect back up towards the focal point. And the, by the dish alone, the dish itself, without any electronic apparatus attached to the dish, it amplifies these signals. It has a gain of uh, about 9,000 times. It's just that much stronger. Uh, wow. It amplifies the signal. And it's, it, you, could, you can liken it to a magnifying glass when you focus the sun onto a piece of paper and you burn the piece of paper with a focal light. Mm. It's that same sort of thing. It just has this ability to focus the energy and, and at the same time give you gain 
and uh, at this particular antenna is made of a, of a mesh, so you can actually see through it. It's uh, the, the average hole size of the mesh is about a centimeter in uh, in size, so its its frequency response is limited. It's it's good from about 400 megahertz right up to about 10 gigahertz into the microwave band. So there's a lot of radio astronomy allocations in that region that we can we can actually study and use, but. Because the dish antenna is on its own and, and its basic construction is, is a parabolic, singular parabolic dish eight and a half meters size, you know, it's also limited as to what we can do with it, uh, unlike comparing it to the Parkes radio telescope, which uses a much mm. massive collecting area, 210 mm. feet and 65 meters. And if you look at all the professional radio telescope installations around the world, you know, the, the, the bigger the antenna, you know, the more collecting area that you've got. And it's the same thing for optical telescope. You know, the bigger that you can get those mirrors, uh, the more light that it collects. So um, we're a bit limited in, in certain ways, but, you know, we can't complain. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you can do radio astronomy with just a bit of wire in the sky, but this, this dish is, uh, is pretty good to be able to, to have. And the receiver that we use at the focal point of the dish is actually a receiver designed to detect the hydrogen line uh, at 1.4 gigahertz and that converts those weak hydrogen line signals uh, down into a, a baseband frequency that we can then go down into an, uh, via an optical cable into our shipping container that's what we use it for our laboratory up there as an old shipping mm -hmm. container and uh, we can just observe hydrogen as it goes through the beam of the antenna. And fortunately, because our, we have azimuth and elevation control on our dish, we can actually point the dish to any part of the sky from horizon to, to zenith. And we have the capability of tracking an object in real time. So, yeah, look, the, the dish is just a huge telescope that's collecting yeah. this radio light and converts it to electrical energy, which then gets sent through a receiver which amplifies the signals again and then on, on the output of that receiver it just goes to a computer mm -hmm. and the computer analyzes the data and, and we haven't quite got there yet but uh, <laughs> we're hoping to produce radio maps that we can actually illustrate and say hey guys this is uh, what we're seeing so far so we're really, really looking forward to that. You mentioned before that it is set to pick up the hydrogen line could you tell me a bit about why that's important? Well, hydrogen's the most abundant gas in the universe. Uh, I think that's probably the first thing that anyone would say about that. Mm. But it also happens to be areas where stars are being formed and it produces this very unique frequency line of, of uh, emission at uh, 1.402, it goes on for several decimal mm -hmm. places. And it is so spot on, so accurate, uh, that by having a receiver tuned to this frequency, uh, you can almost look anywhere in the sky and detect hydrogen, neutral hydrogen. And uh, some areas are, are more hotter than the other, uh, mm. others and others are a little bit colder. But it's by looking at the sky in the hydrogen line frequency that we can actually see parts of the universe or parts of our own galaxy uh, that can't be seen by the human eye, by, by optical means. By observing the hydrogen line, you can see regions of the spiral arms as they form uh, around our own galaxy. In fact, wow. it was through radio astronomy and through uh, research uh, done in detecting hydrogen that we we're able to confirm that we are actually in a spiral type galaxy because we could actually see those spiral arms uh, and the emission that was being given off by hydrogen. So, uh, 
again, this is something that I'm looking forward to uh, to being able to do. So apart from just doing a basic radio map at the hydrogen line frequency, we should be able to also see those spiral arms that the early astronomers uh, were able to see as well. And uh, also uh, there's H2 regions where you've got ionized hydrogen, which can be seen as well. These areas are where star formation is, is occurring in, in, in a very rich kind of an environment. And uh, that produces just a little bit of spectra, not too far from the main hydrogen line. And those might be that those H2 regions might be a little trickier to see, mm. uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing if we can actually see that. So studying the universe at the hydrogen line frequency is revealing quite a different picture uh, of the universe that you just cannot see through optical light. Amazing. So with the new radio telescope, what have you seen so far? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> from the Starbecue last year, we had the dish all powered up and ready to display to uh, quite a few people that were visiting the site for the first time. And we'd only probably just about two or three weeks before the Starbecue, we installed the receiver. We got it all set up and ready to go. And uh, we were hoping to illustrate and show to the people at that Starbecue hydrogen line, the signal of the, well, that background noise of the hydrogen line being detected by the dish for the first time. Things were in place for that to occur. And later in that evening, as folks rolled into the, the shipping container, they, they were actually able to see the hydrogen line being detected. At that time, we were trying to find a first light scenario, uh, a signal that we could illustrate as being the first light. And we actually did. It was first light for sure. But at the time, it was baby steps for us. And mm -hmm. we, we, we were still trying to understand exactly what our dish was seeing, what the hydrogen line receiver was seeing. And I, at the time, I, I thought, let's point it at that galaxy. Let's point it at this object. Let's point it at that object and see what we can see. And blow me down. Everywhere we pointed, we were seeing a peak in the spectra. And I thought, this is working fantastic. Everything's giving off a hydrogen line signature. <laughs> and I thought that's, that's vindication. And um, uh, on our website uh, in the ASV's uh, web, uh, main page, we published that little idea that th this was our first light and here's the spectra of it. Well, I had an email from a fellow radio amateur, Steve Onley, who lives up in, uh, in Sydney area. But Steve very politely told me, Clint, look, congratulations on uh, being able to see first light and that's all working fine. But honestly, the signal that you're seeing there is actually foreground hydrogen in it, and it's not this distant remote galaxy. I'm going, Oh no, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> um, because I, I sent a, a query out to this distant object. Uh, it was PKS 1939-368 or something. The result, the, the information I got back was this was an, a, an extra galactic radio galaxy that was 2.2 giga light years away. I mean, it's so far away. And our dish was picking this up. And I, I must admit, I it did develop a question mark uh, over me. I think, oh, that's so far away. We're seeing such a strong signal from it. So I, I, couldn't, <laughs> you know, I couldn't believe our system was working that well. But no, what we were actually seeing was foreground hydrogen within our own galaxy. Um, okay. So it was actually part of one of the spiral arms in our own galaxy that we were detecting. And I'm still not 100% sure exactly what part of the spiral arm we were looking at. I've yet to work that out. But it wasn't this distant radio uh, extragalactic galaxy. And I, I thought, 
damn it, we we, uh, <laughs> we missed out on that one. <laughs> so I, I then looked at uh, objects like our sister galaxies, the large and small Magellanic clouds, which uh, give off a very good hydrogen line signature. And uh, sure enough, when I turned the dish that first night uh, that I, I turned the dish onto the, I think it was the uh, the small Magellanic cloud, uh, I saw the I saw our characteristic bump of hydrogen in, in the foreground within our own galaxy being indicated by a, a nice little spectra in the middle of the screen. But as the scan started across this, the computer screen, we saw this very beautiful looking bump on the far left hand of the screen. And I thought, my goodness me, that's, uh, that's gotta be the large, the small Magellan cloud. And, and of course, then I did some research before publishing it and saying, no, this is what it is. And did, did actually follow up and, and discover that, that that, in fact, was the, uh, the small Magellanic cloud that we were detecting. And the same sort of thing goes for the large. It was quite an amazing thing to see. So um, I then decided to make that our official f first light uh, observation. It was done around about that same time. So, look, there have been many other objects I've looked at. I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to detect the Vela Pulsar. The, the Vela Pulsar is, uh, is a fairly significant pulsar in, in, in the southern sky that can be viewed. But uh, the, the one thing I'm, I'm, I'm learning with pulsars is that they are a, a broadband emitter and it is some, very, very hard to detect pulses without the appropriate uh, equipment and uh, understanding of how to look for a pulsar. But I still decided to turn the dish towards the Vila pulsar and I was blown away with the, the increase in the noise floor that we had this amazing signal coming from that part of the sky. And I'm thinking, my God, the, the, the Vila pulsar has got to be somewhere in all that. So um, anyway, later research found out that basically the, the pulsar signal was being masked by, again, foreground hydrogen within our own galaxy. Somewhere amongst that information, the pulsar was there. But by using special techniques uh, in resolving these weak signals, that's what we're going to have to rely on to be able to detect the pulses. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of the pulses that, that, have been, that are known now to radio astronomers, their timing periods are well known precisely. And it's through knowing the, the spinning rate of these neutron stars, these pulsars, uh, we can uh, use computer technology to, to look for something that's happening exactly at the, those pulse rates, and that that helps us to be able to to see a pulse star. But even Andromeda uh, M31. Now M31 only gets to about maybe what 12 degrees above our northern horizon here in Melbourne. Uh, I've seen uh, an optical photograph taken from the dark sky site, uh, Liam Mao dark sky site of M31. I, I was blown away. It was so so clear. And uh, so one day I turned the radio telescope towards the sky, and I, I knew. That the, the galaxy was close to the horizon and I knew the chances of being able to see anything was very remote but I do believe that I saw a very small bump in the floor uh, of hydrogen but I'm still not 100% sure if that was Andromeda uh, because with the dish being so close to the horizon you're subject to picking up noise uh, emission radio emission from the ground from trees um, the the view to go through more of the atmosphere to to observe distant objects. Honestly, when it comes to doing radio astronomy, uh, the dish really needs to be up, looking at the sky at about maybe about thirty degrees or so above the the horizon before you minimise the effects of the surrounding. And that's one of the reasons why the Parkes radio telescope. Uh, start there all their observations start from about 30 degrees above the ground that's why the dish was never designed to tilt to enter the horizon although that would have meant much more mechanical structure involved to for the dish to actually come over and look at the mm. horizon 
But one of the reasons why I, I, I said to our mechanical engineer, uh, Peter McGowan, there were, there were three things that I wanted that this dish capable of doing. One was to, uh, to be able to point to all points of the sky and be able to track celestial objects in real time, and that includes the sun and the moon. But the other thing I really wanted was, to, and an important feature anyway, was to have the dish to be able to point right at the horizon, at zero, that zero degree horizon point. Mm. And um, for two reasons. Well, one thing was it's easier for us to work at the focal point. We've got a little bit of scaffolding stand that we can wheel into place. And that gives, gives us access to the focal point so we can change receivers and do technical adjustments and measurements and stuff and then go away. But also um, for ham, ham radio, amateur radio purposes, we can actually use the dish as a transmitting antenna. Oh. So not just are we using it for radio astronomy, we can connect a transmitter to this dish and bounce a signal off the moon. And if the moon's at the horizon, we actually utilize the, the maximum distance to the other side of the world. There are radio amateurs uh, around the world that have substantial setups with their, their, their stations. And by pointing their antennas at the moon, you can use the moon as a passive reflector. So you can just reflect a signal off the moon and it bounces back to, to a corresponding place over the other side of the world. So while the moon's on the horizon, it's also on the horizon in America. So with dishes pointing at the moon, you utilize that maximum hop, that maximum distance uh, aspect. And so, yeah, we plan to reflect the signal off the moon. And the main thing is just to be able to reflect the signal off the moon and hear our voice come back to us. So I'm looking forward to that day where we can actually put the transmitter on the dish and hopefully it'll correspond to a, a, something like the Starbecue. And we can have the kids come over and say, hey, pick up the microphone and go, hello, my name is so-and-so. <laughs> They hear their voice come back from the moon. What a thrill! I mean, that will be. Wow, it's incredible. Come back off the moon. So that's just one of those little things that we'll do. You know, we'll just throw that in. <laughs> <laughs> a little bonus. Thanks for that. Um, just finally, I was going to ask you, how would you suggest that someone new to astronomy becomes involved in radio astronomy? Well, look, I've always maintained that radio astronomy in its basic form uh, is easy to do, and all you need to do is to be able to put up a, a, a what, what's, what we call as a wire dipole antenna. It's, it's basically just two wires in the air supported by two posts, connect a bit of coaxial cable to it and put it into a, a receiver. And that noise that you hear coming out of the speaker of your receiver, a percentage of that noise is the universe speaking to you. It's, it's that galactic noise that by ear, it's just noise. You think, well, mm. what, you know, what is that? But once you stick a chart recorder to it or connect a chart recorder to it and leave it going for a 24-hour period, you can actually see the galactic middle of our galaxy, the galactic bump of noise being detected, which is the thing that Carl Jansky first saw back in 1932. That's what started radio astronomy, was seeing that characteristic bump in the noise floor. And that's the, there's a receiver that you can actually purchase off the internet, it's either in a kit form so you can build it up mm. or... You, spend a bit more money to, to buy one that's complete and it's all part of the radio jove project it's a, a nasa sponsored project and it's called radio jove and they supply a lot of the bits and pieces but it's all the information about the detecting jupiter and detecting other uh, noise sources in the universe can be done by just a simple wire antenna a simple basic receiver and basically a simple computer connected to it all. And with this Jovian receiver, you can detect not only the, the galactic center, which is 26,000 light years away. I mean, that's amazing that we're able to detect 
RF radio emission from so far away. Mm. But it's also, the receiver is also good for solar flares. Uh, the the oh. sun's an amazing source of, of radio emission. And of course, when a, a solar flare occurs or a coronial mass ejection, the kind of noise that you hear through the speaker of your receiver blows you away. It's, it's just, it just it can be very, very loud. <laughs> and um, just, just to imagine in your mind that these charged protons coming down from the, from the, the sun hit the copper wire of your antenna and engage the copper wire and, and moves electrons in this, in this copper wire to your receiver. And you can hear it by ear that this noise is, is what's tantalizing. But the other important thing about the Jove receiver is its main design is to be actually able to detect radio emissions from Jupiter. And Jupiter, in, in our solar system, Jupiter is a very active planet when it comes to radio emission. There are various, what they loosely call Jupiter storms, uh, mm. that can be detected at the shortwave frequencies. And uh, there's actually a book which is available um, at the um, ASV uh, library, and it's called Listening to Jupiter. It's by Richard S. Flagg. And if you can uh, borrow the book from the library, when we can get to the library. Um, <laughs> uh, listening to Jupiter is the is absolute perfect volume for learning about how to, to listen to Jupiter and uh, other, other, you know, other emissions from, uh, from uh, the universe. So um, for a beginner, yes, you can build a very simple antenna, wire antenna, visit the, the NASA Radio Jove website. All the information is there. But yeah, that's a, an easy way of getting on to doing radio astronomy and, and just doing some very simple observations. And uh, I think the other, probably the other thing, issue with that though, though is that in suburbia, we have problems with noise. And uh, just like with optical astronomy, street lights and city lights uh, kill the viewing of the sky. And the same thing applies to radio astronomy. Trying to do some serious radio astronomy amongst the, in, in suburban areas is just affected by radio emission from noisy computers and power supplies and stuff like that. So it can be a bit of a problem. Yeah, I know. That's still very interesting. Thank you so much for that, Clint. It's been it's been really fascinating. Well, if you if anybody's interested in in joining the radio astronomy section or coming along to a meeting, they're, they're certainly they're well and truly uh, invited. We're doing Zoom meetings. Uh, our our meetings are the third Monday of the month, and they usually kick off at about eight o'clock. All that information about the Zoom meetings are on the ASV website, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, anybody is welcome to uh, to pop in and, and yeah, stay as long as they like. <laughs> I've so far I've stayed for over 20 years, so uh, it's been it's been mightily a, a, a fun thing, that's for sure. Thanks for listening to this Way to the Stars, produced for the Astronomical Society of Victoria. For more information on the ASV, please visit asv.org.au. See you next time.